Hello there. This week on the show, I review not six, but one episode, The Team. Is it the beginning of a new superhero team? Also, we get interrupted. How do I know? Find out this week on the Out of Here Podcast. Welcome to the Out of Here Podcast. A podcast that you ought to hear. So we're led to believe anyway. It's I'm Gabriel Coates, your host for today. Happy late new year, everybody. This is my first recording in the year of our Lord 2023, in which I will be discussing the team. I've been taking a well-needed break from the Rydell saga, but it's now time to plunge back into this controversial story arc. Before we get into that, though, I, I want to talk to you all about something really serial. I have an addiction to Captain Crunchberry cereal. I live off this cereal. Recently, though, it's become too much for me. I eat second breakfast now because of this cereal. I needed help. Then I found... We interrupt your regularly scheduled podcast to bring you a developing story. Good evening. I'm Tom Berger of Channel 15 News. Tonight... A bomb has rendered the Novacom broadcast tower obliterated. We go now to our live-on-the-scene correspondent, Chuck Brinkley. Chuck? Thanks, Tom. You're welcome, Chuck. Uh, okay. Anyway, I'm here in the on Tom Riley's farm, where law enforcement and medical professionals have surrounded the ruins of the main outlet of Novacom's broadcasting. The tower is truly in shambles now. The remaining structure has retired to resembling a scrap pile of twisted metal beams. It seems that three people were near the tower when the explosion took place. Two boys and Tom Riley himself. The condition of Riley and the boys is unclear. An ambulance has already taken the two boys to the hospital. While Riley... Wait, wait, what? Riley is walking to one, toward one of the squad cars now. I'll try to get a word from him. Mr. Riley, Mr. Riley, wait, wait! May I please speak to Mr. Riley? Well, it, it seems as if Mr. Riley is currently unavailable for comment. It appears she's being escorted by one of the officers right now. So could that mean that Mr. Riley is currently under suspicion for having set up the bomb? Nah. He and the officer are probably just having a nice chat about apples. I'll try to get a word with one of the officers here before they all decide to leave the scene. Hey, you. You work as an officer, right? Nope. I just like wearing stuffy get-up drinking awful coffee, eating day-old donuts while sitting in a musty office all day on the weekends. Oh, uh, terribly sorry to bother you, sir. I'll go find an actual- No, no, wait, look. Okay, I was joking. So what do you want from me? I just want a few answers to a great many questions, sir. First, do we know right now who created the bomb and set it up at the base of the tower? Nope, we don't know right now. Unfortunately, for all their high-tech gizmos, let of a box, Novacoms didn't set up a security system around the tower. <sighs> Therefore, we have no idea about what happened. I did ever hear Mr. Riley say to Mr. Whitaker that he didn't seem to remember anything about the whole situation. One of the kids, the only one still conscious, said that he saw a person running from the tower right before Riley ran up, warning him the tower was going to explode. It could be that Riley was the man the kids saw running away. We found a trail of fertilizer leading to the tower from Riley's barn. There's also the inherent possibility the man running away is someone completely different. Or that the bomber was nowhere near the scene at all. 
Once again, we don't know. We can't draw any conclusions as of now. All right, so the police don't have any leads. Do you have any ideas? I love the man wholeheartedly. Don't get me wrong. But I think Tom did it. He had the means. Although I'm not sure what the motive would be. Anyway, I can't think of no one else. How has Nevacom responded to this? They haven't as of yet. So I have no doubt they went through the book, the bookcase, and the wall behind the bookcase, and maybe even dropped the roof on the guy who did this. To press full charges is understandable. As of now, Nevacom's main business, broadcasting, has been undercut because their main tower has fallen. I want to find a man who's done this terrible deed. Duty and justice demands for him to be punished. Hey, you! I need you to make me a fresh cup of hot joe. I have a name, you know. It's... Did I mention I want that coffee now? Oh, okay. Well, duty, justice too, caused me away. Thank you for being completely transparent with Channel 15 News today. Oh, you're welcome. Um, everything I just said was off the record and completely unrecorded, right? Where is my coffee? There you have it. A terrible accident with no one to blame. Back to you in the studio. Didn't you hear? Oh, never mind. We'll be keeping you up to date on the story as it continues to unfold. We now return you to your regularly scheduled podcast. Anyway, I know that wave therapy has re really been beneficial for me, and I believe that it will be for you. So now, without much more delay, let's begin discussing episode 922, The Team. episode was written and directed by Phil Lawler. It was sound designed by Luke Gano. The music was composed by not Jared A. Pasquale, but instead John Campbell. More on this later. The cast included Christina Pacelli as Emily, Attica Schaefer as Maury, April Hong as Zuzu, Preston Butler III as Cooper Calhoun, and Joel McCrary returning as Simon Jones. Hold on. The cat wants in. I think she's feeling lonely. I'm recording a podcast. Alright, well, the cat's gonna be in here for a little while. So, yeah. Andre Soyluzgo, who also played Mario in The Forever Gift, plays Principal Soli, and Lloyd Pittman who I couldn't find any acting credits for outside of, or even inside of, Adventure Odyssey, plays Seymour Krelborn, which, uh, what a name. <laughs> While wit is heard at the very end, if you listen carefully, you can tell it's reused audio. In fact, I believe it's, I recognize the audio from When One Door Closes. Sorry, the cat's now wanting to look out the window. And then she leaves. It's the weirdest thing. Like, I, I give the cat what she wants, and then she decides to leave. I had not high hopes when I began listening to this episode. I did have the amazing opportunity to record an initial reaction, initial review to the episode with 14 other Odyssey fans on the Odyssey Fan Podcast AIO Audio News. A link to the initial reaction will be in the show notes if you want to take a listen. I think my initial thoughts on the episode can be summarized in this clip. Any thoughts real quick? Finally, uh, thumbs <laughs> down. We're not even done with the episode yet. What are you talking about, thumbs down? <laughs> if I had been recording this episode last year, I might have hammered home 
the idea that this is the, quote, single most worstest episode in the history of Adventures in Odyssey and of all audio drama, unquote. The thing is, though, that this episode is still A, quality audio production and quality performance from the actors, B, includes natural dialogue and an intriguing story, C, does what an Odyssey episode should do, entertain children, pull into parents' ear, and teach a valuable lesson, which in this case is about forgiveness. Contained by itself, it's an objectively decent episode. Unfortunately, this episode isn't self-contained, and is not only a part of a greater show, but also supposed to tie up loose ends from the Rydell saga and help to transition this, this saga into an arc or a general genre episode series like BTV or the Jones and Parker Mysteries. Ignoring specific parts about the saga just because we don't want to doesn't help when it's trying to deal with Emily's emotional issues in the wake of the events of the saga. I find myself saddened when I think about the potential that this saga had only to go in a different direction. Not a direction that benefits the saga by tying together dangling threads, mind you, but a direction that regresses the saga by ignoring plot holes now created by previous episodes or tucking plot points under the rug. I'll stop right there before I embark on a tirade. <laughs> From the problems in the writing, I can see that either Phil Waller didn't think over this episode carefully, or he was rushed in some way or another. I don't know how he could have been rushed, but I, I guess it's possible. The problems mainly pertain to the scene that revolve around the principal's office. First, the entire scene was completely unnecessary. The EMS plus Calhoun could have simply spoken with the principal, explained the situation to a point while keeping Cooper's secret, and the problem I'm mentioning next wouldn't have been needed. It doesn't matter whether or not they mention it at the end of the episode that they should have told the principal. They should have still told the principal. The next problem is the very idea of this battle droid gargantuan that Zuzu has. She's never really shown an interest in robotics, though maybe her interest in tinkering with locks has led to this. The question is though, how did she even build this thing? I suppose Mr. Whitaker would allow her to build it in his workshop, except I don't believe he would condone using the robot for violence of any kind, or would give her access to fireworks either. Where is she storing this thing as well? How did she manage to get this droid, fireworks and all, to the park herself? How big is this thing? All the robot amounts to is a convenient plot device. Maybe it'll show up in another episode? I don't know. Thirdly, Moy Rydell is an enigma. No, I mean he is an enigma. As in, he is incredibly difficult to understand in this episode. First of all, for all his smarts, he's completely idiotic about the social cues that Emily's giving. And also, it's not all the technical talk he did, but it's, it was what he did that he was explaining that made me confused. I don't know if this is the case of all y'all Android users. I'm praying for you, by the way. But with the Apple iPhone, it's near impossible to reprogram something like a phone's GPS. You can't really reprogram anything, in fact, as far as I know. Still, for the sake of argument, let's assume that Cooper's smartphone was an Appleberry, which is, for some weird reason, reprogrammable. Maybe he has a Raspberry in that, that's why. Then another question comes to mind. How did Mori type that program, that algorithm, in five seconds? I've dabbled in programming before, a while back, and if I know one thing, it's a even simple text appearing on the screen programs require a lot of time to type out. Yes, I was learning and I was referring back to the book, unlike the whiz that Mori is, yet he still has to type out 
an entire algorithm into a phone. Also, let's not forget one of the revelations from the Rydell revelations. Mori has a bad hand, so while he may be able to type, he can't type super well. I may be misunderstanding Mori's condition, it might just be that he can't handwrite really well, but regardless, it's something to consider when he types a full program in 5 seconds. Even apps for iPhones have to take more than 5 seconds to download, and one that deals with a built-in safety feature like a phone's GPS is unheard of as far as I'm concerned. Still, say more could reprogram the GPS. We'll go with it. Then show him doing it while the rest of the group is talking. Well, it's going to be boring because, you know, if Mori does it as the group is talking, it's not going to be as entertaining. Okay, well then show Mori typing it while he's discussing the plan of the group. Just show him doing work because otherwise it feels very unrealistic. The last issue I will bring up is the final scene of the episode with Emily and her dad, Judge Simon Jones. Simon, the mouthpiece for Phil Lawler, seems to all but remember the heartache and trauma that Maury and Zuzu, unintentionally or not, brought upon Emily. John Total Deferred shared a good analogy when we were discussing the episode. You can forgive the dog for biting your hand, but you don't put your hand back in the cage. You can forgive them, but you don't have to hang around them. Yes, we're supposed to love people, we're supposed to be at peace with everybody, but maybe being at peace with people is not hanging out with them all the time. Now the devil's trying to tell you don't hang out with that person. That's the enemy. We don't listen to him. But putting yourself around people that cause you heartache and stress isn't a good idea when you're trying to still deal with those emotions. You have to deal with those emotions, mind you, instead of letting them ruin your life. It's troubling, though, that this is the message and Phil Lawler is sending to kids. If there are people who can hurt you and have hurt you, you go ahead and hang out with them instead of good friends who actually care about you, like Matthew Parker. I understand they're trying to phase out the Parker family, yet I'd hope they would also phase out Emily as soon as the Rydell saga was finished. Instead, Odyssey is trying to move this story forward when the proper conclusion for the story was let's call the whole thing off or this episode. Simon is in this scene, encouraging his daughter to spend a considerable amount of time with people who've abused her. <sighs> Thanks, Phil Lawler. You got me on a tirade. Again. The music composer being John Campbell instead of Jared DePasquale is the first for the Rydell saga since A Sacrificial Escape. Initially, I was confused about this until I realized at least two possibilities. The first possibility for the composer change could be a shift to make this saga more like a genre of Odyssey episodes than a specific saga that's building towards something at a fast pace. The second possibility is really simple. Mori has kidnapped Jared De Pasquale out of spite for how his saga went. Another problem that I didn't write in my notes, but uh, I wanted to bring this up anyway, and I brought this up in an initial reaction anyway. So the whole foundation of the CEMS team is that the CEMS are told by Mr. Whitaker the problems that the kids get themselves into, and then the CEMS team go out and solve those problems. So, I have a few issues. These kids don't have really good morals. And the whole point of this episode is that Emily May is a good moral leader. Okay, cool. She's Captain America. Cool. Awesome. But the kids that have these problems are confiding in Mr. Whitaker. They are not confiding in this CEMS team. So Mr. Whitaker betraying her, their trust, saying, Hey, CEMS team, go do this. Go help in this situation. When maybe these kids don't have any place in that situation. Yeah, I'm just not. I don't like the concept and the foundation the CEMS team are founded on. But still, well, let's get into this. Make the leap. Good cat. I posed the question in the intro whether or not 
Odyssey is creating its own team of superheroes, or in this case, super geniuses. So where does this question come from? Phil Lawler has said in an interview with the AIO Wiki podcast that Mori and Zuzu are super geniuses, people who are incredibly intelligent to the point that they're constantly doing things that they're good at because they get really bored easily and they can they just are constantly wanting to do stuff. One could infer that Emily is one of those as well, with her observational skills and deductive reasoning abilities. The fact that these individuals are special is brought up in the final scene of Rideau Revelations as well. Vancouver is asked to join, not because he's super smart, but because he's stronger than the others. They each have their own abilities and strengths that complement the others, and together they are unstoppable. That line of reasoning is very similar to those who've seen several superhero teams take form, such as Marvel's Avengers, the X-Men, DC's Justice League, you get the picture. So now that I've hopefully explained that question as much as it needs to be explained, is the CMEMS a type of superhero team? I'm only able to speculate, but I say yeah, it, it's definitely a superhero team. Again, the evidence which I've already stated points in that direction. Why does it matter, you ask? This team of gifted, special individuals sounds a lot like the Israelites from the Adventures of Nazi book series and from Darkness Before Dawn. This isn't to get your hopes up that maybe the CMS is going to be fighting against you-know-who. Uh, go listen to album 73 already. Okay. Then again, maybe the CEMS are being set up for such a confrontation. I can only speculate. So I guess we'll have to find out in the episodes to come. Still, shameless plug, you can send me your thoughts about this and more about the episode by emailing me at gabriels.ideas at gmail.com. No apostrophe. Or just simply tell us in a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Let me say that while I'm frustrated with Phil Lawler for how he dealt with the saga as a whole, I loved the mystery in this episode. It's not like Bob Hoos's style writing where he pulls you along until Emily guesses right, or at least guesses in a way that leads to the right conclusion. You can't really call this a mystery episode because not really a mystery episode. I sure did enjoy the intrigue and mystery surrounding the mysterious caller a lot more than in Let's Call the Whole Thing Off. Maury didn't just guess and answer rightly. He actually had a way to track him, despite how he did it still being a plot hole. The point being, Phil Lawler is still a great writer that writes compelling stories. I've said this before in other episodes, but I'll say it again. Lucano outdoes himself with his sound design. He had to juggle in one scene, mind you. A parading, firework shooting, robot, a radio piece in the left ear, a phone call in the other, voices being heard nearby and on the radio, and Cooper hacking into the principal's computer. I'd clap for him, except I think it would hurt your ears if you're listening on headphones. Oh, and dare I forget to mention that he incorporates the ARM sound effect when Seymour erases his computer. I don't know if I use that particular sound effect often with this show, so, I appreciate that. Excellent job once again. Speaking of Seymour, I have to say he's a different kind of bad guy. Someone who makes trouble because why not is interesting. I don't know what to make of him. He's a plausible character, but I don't think he's a probable character. I guess he got all of his tracks covered, except the fact that the CEMS team now would have him on their list of suspects. Thus, they could catch him sooner. It's not even like he knows anything about computers. So, what's the point to his character? I hope we get the answer to that question in upcoming shows, because I'm an intrigued nonetheless. I also want to include this observation I made about the way that April Hong plays the character of Zuzu. In my review of Let's Call the Whole Thing Off, 
I mentioned that April Hong, since Right Out Revelations Part 3, seemed to be playing Zuzu in a more on-the-edge kind of way. To be honest, and to put it plainly, she seemed like she would have been more insane. Which makes sense, since we learn early on in Right Out Revelations Part 3, that she's got a tendency for stealing? And she doesn't know what stealing's wrong? She sees it as fun? Anyway, it continues into that episode. Let's call the whole thing off. And if memory serves me right, I complained about the inconsistency with Rideau Revelations Part 1 and before on how Zuzu was played. Well, she's back to regular old Zuzu, as we heard her before the Revelations. Now I'm even more flustered. Because if you're going to make a change midway through, even in something small like how an actor plays one character, then stick with that change. Either Phil is trying to move away from that direction that he himself set up in the Rider Revelations, or they didn't check for consistency between episodes. Who knows? Maybe Phil happened to listen to my review and thus made the change on the account of how critical I seem to be of it. My thoughts on this episode overall are, to my own surprise, really negative. I didn't enjoy this episode like most other Odyssey episodes. The fun of Adventures in Odyssey is that all of their episodes exist in the same universe, with recurrent characters throughout it. So when I think an episode is better not being in Odyssey, that's kind of when you know the episode isn't that great. It's okay on its own, but as a part of a larger universe and saga, it's disappointing. We don't get a proper goodbye to the character of Emily with the conclusion of this saga. It's not even a saga at this point. It's a story arc that will intertwine with the rest of the Odyssey universe for the foreseeable future. I guess my low expectations were met. Regardless of how good of a plot it was, how interesting of a villain there is in Seymour, or the amazing sound work by Lucano, I find myself frustrated when thinking about the large ramifications of this episode, as well as a silly, pointless scene with Gargantua and the Baldroid. Like I said in the initial reaction, I give this episode a thumbs down. CEMS, it's time to disassemble. <sighs> I'm sorry guys, I did not expect this review to be really negative when I started it. I tried to be more positive about it. It's too much negativity and I can move on to other things, which I will be moving on to other things soon. In fact, since we're wrapping up the podcast anyway, I might as well tell y'all, I plan to next episode start reviewing the Lost One arc, starting with Higher Than Our Ways. See y'all next episode. Thank you so much for listening to episode 14 of the Auto Here podcast. The cat thanks you as well for listening to her bell. No holidays coming up. So, uh, I guess gotta give a normal goodbye. I hope y'all have a blessed week. Don't worry, boys. I'll be back. I mean, I already told you guys what I'm doing next episode, so I guess I have to be back. The Other Hair Podcast is a production of Get Rose Ideas. This is a fan podcast. It is in no way affiliated with or endorsed by Focus on the Family. You can email us at getrose.ideas at gmail.com. Special thanks to Kera Benetan for lending his voice. And I'm the French narrator at the end. Hope you'll join us for the next episode of The Other Hair Podcast.